The Holy Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Glory, Glory to you, Lord Christ. While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of a very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at the high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for the burial. Truly I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, my Lord, my rock, and my redeemer. We've all been there. They've just finished up the weekly home group. The end draws near. The night is almost over, and that can only mean one thing. Time to pray out loud. Your leader peers around the circle, and everyone is already saying a small prayer. Please, God, don't pick me. So I've distilled five subtle moves to get you out of Dodge. Number one, put your head down slowly. Don't drop too fast, or he'll pick you for being so eager to pray. Two, look prayerful with eyes of terror. Make that face that lets him know absolutely nothing is going on upstairs. It may help to have already royally screwed up a group question earlier in the night. Number three, start crying. Number four, utilize anything that covers your face. A hoodie, hands, or, if you're a glowing Moses, up for the veil. Five, it's risky, but open your Bible, gathering everyone's attention. Scan the pages, close your Bible, then shamefully shake your head. Your group leader will think, he's got nothing. <laughs> In the event that you do get picked, here are five tips on how to give an amazing group prayer. Number one. Repeat verbatim the prayer requests in order. They're like packaged prayers. If you're confident, turn the tables by assigning them to others. Two, be sure to say God before every single word, sometimes twice in a row. Won't make sense in normal conversation, but somehow works in public prayer. Three, start crying. Four, open with, hey daddy, no one will like it, but they'll all be thinking, wow, he's really talking to someone. Five, summarize the last worship song the group sang. Here's an example. God, you are the everlasting God. I'm talking the everlasting God. You don't even faint or take power naps. You defend the weak, like us, and then you can chuckle. <laughs> You comfort, those, you comfort those in need, like us, and then you can touch the nearest leg. You lift us up on wings, wings 
like eagles. I brought that bit of comedy from an evangelical pastor friend. Uh, like prayer, worship can feel intimidating. I always get self-conscious when we get to that moment in the liturgy where we point at Jesus. I kind of am worried that I might be the only one pointing this week. <laughs> um, but in this brief encounter we read about in the Gospels between Jesus and an unnamed woman at Bethany, we see how profound and otherworldly worship can truly be. According to the Gospels, worship has three dimensions. Worship is intimate, worship is truthful, and worship is costly. So first, worship is intimate. In the first century, women would be prohibited from interacting with men in the fashion as our woman did. First, because Jesus was at the house of Simon the leper, this woman risked becoming unclean herself just by gaining access to Jesus. Second, by approaching Jesus in the middle of a dinner party, this anonymous woman flouted established social etiquette, which segregated men and women in public. So this was presumptuous, a reckless act of devotion, a public act and therefore sure to draw the attention of others, but at the same time executed in the intimate personal space between two vulnerable bodies. Imagine the scene. She takes his head in her hands, carefully pulls back his hair, uncorking the alabaster jar, likely no bigger than a thin vial. She drizzles the crushed oil onto his scalp. It runs over his beard, his desiccated lips, his tense, scrawny shoulders. The eyes of all guests remain transfixed, those sitting near scoot to the side. Suddenly there are only two people in the room, and this is the only social interaction that matters. He is made publicly uncomfortable. She is unmade, financially and socially, a scapegoat for the disciples' quick criticism. But all this bears no consequence for her. She has met her king, and she has responded in kind. Confronted with her Lord, she offers the only honor she knows how to perform. Be she a prostitute, as the author of the Gospel of Luke alleges, or simply a stranger, as Matthew has it, she brings all she is and lays it at Jesus' feet. How might God be calling you to transgress social barriers in order to worship him today? Might he be asking you to view your work as worship, even confessing his name at the office or medical practice to the almost certain disgrace and embarrassment of your colleagues? Might he be bidding you to live a life more devoted to him, despite the emotional distance you've erected by relegating him to an hour and a half on Sundays? Worship is not only how we build intimacy with God, it is also how we practice sanctifying intimacy with each other. Indeed, in all societies, worship has served as the primary means through which individuals in a community see and affirm each other's fractured humanity. This is precisely why corporate worship is indispensable to living a life hidden with God in Christ. Yes, daily prayer and devotion are exceedingly valuable and can be sources of rapturous moments of intimacy with Jesus, but there's something peculiar and profound about the liturgy. In every week's liturgical dance, our mouths and our bodies move in sync, confessing our sins and preaching God's faithfulness to each other, to ourselves. In an era of rapidly evolving digital technology, it can be strange and uncomfortable to seek such communal intimacy. 
As one writer says, previous technologies have expanded communication, but the last round may be contracting it. The eloquence of letters has turned to the unnuanced spareness of texts. The intimacy of phone conversations has turned to the missed signals of mobile phone chat. I think of that lost world, the way we lived before these new networking technologies, as having two poles, solitude and communion. The new chatter puts us somewhere in between, assuaging fears of being alone without risking real connection. It is a shallow between two deep zones, a safe spot between the dangers of contact with ourselves, with others. In contrast, the liturgy invites us to experience both the harrowing peace of solitude and the joyous reciprocation of communion. My favorite moments in our Mass are those in which no one is speaking, but all are quieting their own inner monologues, looking toward the altar for God to reveal himself. Those moments are the richer because of others in which we collectively praise him. They find their fulfillment in the satisfaction of communal intimacy. So worship is intimate. It is also truth truthful. By anointing Jesus, this woman declares the kings of Jerusalem and Judea, the emperors of Rome, and all other earthly magistrates, dethroned and defunct. Jesus is the one true king, the one God's spirit descends upon and rests forevermore. This is, in fact, the transcendent event the anointing is meant to symbolize. Just as the kings of ancient Israel, like Saul, were promised God's help and protection in their anointing, Jesus' public ministry commences with his baptism, a type of anointing at which we see the Holy Spirit descend on him, and his passion commences with this anointing, a humble one, in the, the home of a sinner. But unlike earthly rulers who gloat over their triumphs, Jesus deflects attention. He evades the paparazzi. Even at the inauguration of his Christhood, his anointedness, he lifts up the lowly. An anonymous woman, she is to be remembered wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world. Not the one on whom God's spirit rests. Indeed, Jesus doesn't triumphantly declare, ha, we won, now I'm going to make Israel great again. Rather, he humbly points towards his passion. Would-be followers of Christ take note. The way into Jesus' kingdom requires that both he and his loyal entourage don burial linens. So worship is truthful because it reminds us how much our sin costs and proclaims that the only way into true life is through death. No doubt we've heard preachers ask, so what do you worship? And Father Stephen loves to quote David Foster Wallace, who says this, in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. But let's pause here because it's far too easy to excuse ourselves from such false worship by saying, well, yes, everybody worships, meaning everybody cares too much about certain things and not enough about God. But even when I slip into that overcare, it's not because I confuse these things with God, giving them div divine status and offering blood sacrifices to them. 
So, no, I don't actually worship them, do I? Let us consider the woman at Bethany again. She who quietly pronounced our Lord Christos, the anointed, the Messiah. Her simple hand gestures proclaimed a fundamental truth, that Jesus, not Caesar, is king. Her story isn't told throughout the whole world because she internally regarded Jesus as more important than Caesar or than Herod. It's because she publicly declared allegiance to Jesus. She stood with him and asserted his rightful claim to the throne, even as he was on his way to be crucified. See, our forebears in England, for them, faith, or in Latin, fides, was closely linked to what they gorgeously called fealty, or in Latin, fidelitas. To have faith in your local lord, or in your prince, or the monarch, to believe that they had your best interest in mind, that they would treat you justly in all domestic matters and protect you from any threat outside their jurisdiction, this belief came hand in hand with your willingness to take up arms and fight under their banner. Indeed, truthful worship not only means proclaiming Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as the one and only God, but it also means swearing fealty, faithfulness, to the triune king. And as a jealous God, he can permit no contrary allegiances. Therefore, our worship requires us to be truthful about who is not on the throne. Your bank account is not on the throne. Your cute new haircut is not on the throne. Your spouse is not on the throne. Your children, lovely though they are, are not on the throne. Donald J. Trump is not on the throne. And most importantly, you are not on the throne. Folks, Jesus is on the throne. So what does it look like to live out our allegiance to Jesus? Again, here, David Foster Wallace is just too clear-sighted and prophetic not to quote. After listing a host of ways modern people tend to worship, he says, Look, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful. It's that they are unconscious. They are default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into, day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. And the world will not discourage you from operating on your default settings because the world of men and money and power hums along quite nicely on the fuel of fear and contempt and frustration and craving and the worship of self. Our own present culture has harnessed these forces in ways that have yielded extraordinary wealth and comfort and personal freedom. The freedom to be lords of our own tiny skull-sized kingdoms alone at the center of all creation. But of course, there are different kinds of freedom. And the kind that is most precious you will not hear talked about much in the great outside world of winning and achieving and displaying. The really important kind of freedom involves attention and awareness and discipline and effort and being truly able to care about other people and to sacrifice for them over and over in myriad, petty, little, unsexy ways every day. That is real freedom. 
Friends, the freedom of truthful worship is the only freedom worth seeking, and it is found in the cross. So freedom is intimate, freedom is truthful, and finally, freedom is costly. Let's go back to the text. In the Gospel of Matthew, we're told the ointment was expensive, likely this woman's most valuable possession, her rainy day savings fund. The Gospel of John tells us that Judas assessed the value at 300 denarii, roughly a year's wages for a day laborer. Thus, in this one act, this five-second act, this woman's hopes for financial stability are unplugged and upended. But she cares not, for whatever she could buy with that sum pales in comparison to the treasure she's found in Jesus. This past fall, I was charged with the children's liturgy of the word, children's catechesis, and uh, one of the parables we explored was the one about the man who found a treasure in a field and then went and sold all he had to buy the field and consequently the treasure. I asked the kids if they could think of the time when they had to give up something valuable in order to get something more valuable. And nobody could think of a good example. (laughs) So we just played a game instead. And at the time, I thought I had I'd phrased the question incorrectly, or um, you know, perhaps I, I should have made it about the feeling of giving something up instead of an actual anecdote, because that's a little harder to think about on the spot. But later on, I actually realized it was a wonderful thing that these children didn't have any anecdotes to share because they don't have any attachment to things. <laughs> of course, they've all had to give up their sole claim to a toy in order to share at some point usually with a sibling. But the beautiful thing is that they care in the moment, and they might pitch a fit, but then they forget about it. In other words, all the things that are truly valuable in their lives, the love of their parents, the memories from a field trip with their friends at school, are intangible. Worship is costly for us because as adults, we've developed severe attachments to things. And God tends to demand from us our most tightly gripped assets, doesn't he? Have you ever noticed that you don't often get to decide what God demands of you? It's not, oh, a 10% here and a few hours there. It's whatever you care about most passionately, whatever sits atop your own private altar for worship. Now, I'm not saying that your devotion is impure if you aren't giving a certain dollar amount to church or donating your time to refugee and displaced persons relief. But what I think the gospel is saying is that if there's, if there's too clean a distinction between the unbounded emotional rhapsody you experience when singing hymns and the financially responsible big person pants you wear when you tithe, there's something wrong. Jesus also frames worship as ultimately more important than the perennial call to serve the poor. Does that mean that serving the poor is a worthless ambition? No. But it is, is it a substitute for true and spirit-led worship? Absolutely not. What Jesus has said about the poor has confounded readers ever since. Does he mean it's fruitless to try to eradicate systemic poverty on earth? 
This is something that we can hope for only in the new Jerusalem. So we shouldn't put our, our faith in big government to do it for us. I don't think so, precisely. I think what Jesus was saying was that the poor will always be among his followers because his followers will have a heart for the poor. As theologian Stanley Hauerwas writes, Christianity is a faith of the poor. This woman poured precious ointment on a poor person. The poor that we will always have with us is Jesus. It is to the poor that all extravagance is to be driven. The wealth of the church is the wealth of the poor. The beauty of a cathedral is a beauty that does not exclude, but in fact draws and includes the poor. The beauty of the church's liturgy, its music and its hymns, is a beauty of and for the poor. The beauty of the literature of the church, its theology and its philosophy, are distorted if they do not contribute to our common life, life in which the poor are central, determined by the worship of God. The church's wealth, the precious ointment poured out by this woman on Jesus, is never wasted on the poor. So worship is costly because it demands we pledge our financial allegiance to God. And because the naked and the hungry of the world, the lowliest, neediest of these, are the very representation of Christ among us. In a moment, we'll stand to recite the Nicene Creed. We'll confess our sins, receive absolution from God himself, offer our gifts, partake in the Lord's Supper. These may be the most intimate, truthful, and costly acts we perform all week. As you continue in worship, consider how Jesus bids us to worship him with our all-too-human bodies. We join our fragile voices together and proclaim God's infragility, his power and dominion. We see and smell the holiness of him who has no shape or odor. We read aloud the words of Christ, the eternal word who issues forth from God's nonverbal darkness. And we consume the body and blood of him whose body is his church, whose blood is his life-giving spirit, and whose ultimate desire is to consume us in his ever-expanding love. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.